0: gospel lesson this morning is from Luke's gospel chapter 15. Now normally it is our tradition to stand to give respect and honor to the words and the work of Jesus Christ, but because our sermon text this morning is 21-24 verses long and is going to be read throughout the sermon, uh, you can stay seated. I'd ask that you open up your Bibles, whether it's digital or hard copy to Luke chapter 15. Our lesson is going to start at verse 1. Let's go before our God in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Labels, they don't actually define us. They don't actually define who we are, right? That is, until they do, right? Are you a Republican? Or are you a Democrat? Are you conservative? Or are you liberal? Are you someone who is smart? Or are you someone who is dumb? Are you someone who's from Generation X? Or a millennial? Just last week, I flew on Southwest Airlines. And before each of my flight, I was asked, are you a Rapids reward member? To which I said, I'm not labeled. Are you straight or are you gay? Are you funny or are you serious? Are you black or are you white? Are you a Lutheran? Are you Catholic? Are you Baptist or do you prefer the label non-denominational? Are you good or are you bad? Labels, labels are everywhere. And people obsess about labels because labels clearly and quite confidently tell us who's in, who's out. Who's a part of the tribe? Who's not? Who belongs inside? And who belongs, well, on the outside? I said this morning, our gospel lesson is from the gospel of Luke chapter 15. And in this lesson, Jesus is with some people who are from seemingly, well, two very opposite groups. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are proudly enjoying the label as such. Pharisees, teachers of the law. On the other side, we have people who have the socially damning label of sinners. Jesus, we're in Luke chapter 15, and to catch you up to speed, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for sinners. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus stops and he eats with sinners. We're in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Then Jesus told them this parable. You see, to sit down, And to eat with people in that time and in that place meant that you associated, that you approved of these people. What the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were really saying was, Jesus, how dare you eat with sinners and tax collectors? These people don't come to the worship services at the synagogue. What is Jesus teaching these people? What is causing them to gather around and listen to Jesus? It must not be our truth he must be telling them something that they want to hear. And so Jesus tells them this parable, or rather, an earthly story that has an eternal point. Jesus tells them a parable, and in it, he's going to categor- categorically challenge our categories. He's going to take down our labels and challenge everything that we thought we knew about who's in, who's not, what it means to be right with God what it means to be saved, and what it means to be a sinner. As we read this parable, make no mistake about it, Jesus is not trying to comfort hearts with this parable. He's trying to challenge and change our concept of labels. We continue Luke chapter 15, jumping to verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is one of the most well-known stories ever told. It's often been referred to or labeled as the prodigal son or the lost son. But as we look closer at Jesus' words right here, what we'll see is perhaps Well, perhaps this story is mislabeled. There's one son who comes to Jesus and asks him for his share of the inheritance. This is not unusual. In that time, in that place, the father, when he died, would divide up his inheritance between all his kids. And so in an instance like this, where there is two sons, one son, the older son would get a double portion. Any oldest children here today? Yes, yes, we would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The other child third. So it wasn't ridiculous that the younger son was asking for his share of the estate. He had wealth that he could expect to get. What was scandalous though, what was ridiculous was that his father was still alive. Well, this was deeply disrespectful. This was a death wish. This was the son saying, dad, I want your things, but I don't want you. And yet look what the father says, or look what he did. He divided his property between them. To grasp the significance of that, can I give you a little bit of a, a Bible geek, I mean Greek trivia? The, uh, the word there for property that is in the English version, yeah, it's, it's not a word that means concrete capital. It's actually a much different word. It's the word bios, which means life. What this father had to do to give up some of the inheritance for his son, to grant his request, was give up part of him, give up part of his life. You see, at this time, this place, a father, a wealthy father's wealth would have been tied up in real estate. And so to give a third of his inheritance, a third of his life away to his son, well, he would have had to have sold his property. No longer was this just family business, but all of a sudden this became a citywide scandal. People would have known what the son requested because the for sale sign would have gone up. And yet the father would endure the shame. He took it. He sold his property. He lost a stake in the community because he loved his son. We continue on with verse 13. Not long after that, The youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need of his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants had food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Here's the plan. He's going to go back. He's going to ask dad for a job. But this wasn't just a, hey dad, I blew some cash, got a little debt. Can you hook me up with a job? No, this was realizing full and well that he did not deserve to be a part of the family. He said it himself. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He knew. He knew that the the Jewish law at the time not only demanded an apology. No, an apology wouldn't have been good enough. It demanded repayment. It demanded that he make up for what he did. And so his plan was a business plan. He said, Dad, make me like one of your hired servants. Make me an apprentice to one of your guys so that I can begin to work and and pay you back. He gets up out of the pigsty. He rehearses the speech. And he prepares to meet his father. But, but, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Ah, shh! And to the servants he said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again, he was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Oh, the son tries. He tries to roll out the business plan. He tries to make his presentation to dad, but his dad shuts him up with a kiss and a hug. He tells him to bring out the best robe. The best robe, his robe. He said, put it on my son. No, there could be no clear distinction of his reinstatement back to the family. He's wearing his father's robe. He's wearing his father's ring. He has his father's office. And what's more, he says, bring out the fattened calf. This was the best food. Texts went out. Family and friends were invited. Everybody came to this party. There was music. There was dancing. This would have been the party of the year. The whole city would have been invited. I mean, just imagine it. Can you imagine throwing a party for your son or your daughter or your lost family member who you thought was dead and is now home? Could you imagine being at that party? Could you imagine sitting at your table and just watching the son and the father interact with one another as the night went on? You see the son smiling, knowing that he's at this party he didn't, he didn't deserve to be at. You see dad fawning over his son, completely forgetting what had happened. But you know it. I mean, everybody there at the party knows it. You had heard the rumors. You saw the Snapchat stories. This guy made some new friends. He had tasted some fine wine. He had a different woman in his bed every single night. And you also knew what happened because of that. He ended up in shame. He ended up, well, living in poverty. The good Jewish boy who couldn't eat pork ended up wanting to feed on the pig's pods. And So you watch all this. And you wonder to yourself, would my family, would my father treat me the same way if he knew what I did? I mean, because on some level, you can relate, can't you? I mean, we've all been the younger brother. We've all gone after things looking for gratification, but send it up in grief. We've all looked for pleasure. And it's resulted in pain. We've taken God's blessings and absolutely squandered them. We've taken opportunities and ruined them and wrecked relationships along the way. Yeah. Yeah. On some level, we can all relate to the younger brother. And you sit there and you wonder, would my father, would my family... Welcome me back. And yet, what the Father says to the Son, He also says to you. What your God says. To you is this. He says, you are welcomed back into my family. I'm not going to make you repay that which you have done. I am not going to make you earn your acceptance into my family. I'm just going to take you in. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. You cannot out-sin me. We say it every Sunday that we take communion. Go in peace. Come on in. You are right with God. All of your sins have been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you. No, this son returns home because he knows there's spare food there. But what he experiences is spare grace. What he experiences is unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness. And that's what our God gives to you. That's what our God gives to every single younger brother that's here. But meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son is in the field. When he came home near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of his servants and he asked him what was going on. Your younger brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered him, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and have never disobeyed you or your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And then it ends. That's how Jesus ends this parable. He ends this parable with the older brother, the elder brother, sitting outside, sulking, mad. But I mean, can you really blame him? He said it himself. He never disobeyed his father. He was right. It was his brother who was the loser. It was his brother that littered the property with all sorts of sins. It was his brother that embarrassed the family. It was his brother that brought shame on the whole community. And I mean, let me put this in perspective for you. Do you know what welcoming the younger brother meant for the older brother? Literally, father was right. He said it. Everything I have is yours. The inheritance, it had been divided. Two thirds, that which was left, that was the older brother's. Oh, and now it, now it meant it would have to be divided again. This meant loss for the older brother. And the servants they almost anticipate his reaction. Older brother comes back. Here's the dancing. Here's the music. Any he jokes? He goes, what? Y'all having a party without me? And the servant says, uh, yeah, your brother's back. The calf's been killed. The older brother becomes angry and refuses to go in. And so now it becomes the older brother's turn to insult the father. He refuses to go in to what would have been the greatest party that the father ever threw. He publicly gives his stamp of disapproval on what his father's doing. It's like if you sat outside your brother or your sister's wedding, pouting, moaning, making a big stink about things until your mommy and daddy were forced to come outside. It would have meant embarrassment for the father. It would have meant embarrassment for the family. And what's more? Oh, he insults his dad. In a time and in a place where esteem and respect were given to fathers? Oh no, he doesn't even address him with that. He says, look. He says, in essence, look you. You have never given me anything publicly. Shames his father. And in this instant, look. Look at how the father responds. A man of standing in that time and in that place could have very, very easily disowned this son. And yet he says to him, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate. We had to be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. He says, my brother, I want you to come into this feast. Listen, I can't disown your younger brother and I'm not going to disown you either. All I have is yours. I want you with me. Please, please put away your pride and come in. And this is how the story ends. This story ends with this dramatic and gracious appeal on behalf of the father to the older brother. And in ending the story this way, Jesus Christ, who is the master storyteller, completely flips everything you and I have ever known, everything the, the Pharisees and the sinners thought they ever knew about what it means to be right with God, about what it means to be on the inside, about what it means to be labeled a sinner about what it means to be labeled as saved. You see, as Jesus ends this, he reveals the older brother's heart. The older brother had an opportunity to delight his father, to go in to the feast, to welcome his brother home, but he didn't. He reveals his heart and he shows us why it is that he had obeyed his father. He says it. He says, you never gave me anything. He didn't please the father. He didn't obey the father because he wanted to love him and respect him. No, he did it so that his father would owe him. And here at the end of the story, what Jesus is showing us is that these two brothers, though very different, are also very, very much alike. Because on the one hand, you have the younger brother who wanted to control his life. And he did it by going very far away from his father and breaking all the rules. But on the other hand, you have the elder brother who wanted to be in control of his life and who did it by staying next to his father and keeping all of his rules with the underlying expectation that you now owe me. Now things have to go according to my way. You see, what Jesus is saying in this is that we have two brothers here who both wanted to put the, position, the father in a position where they could tell him what to do. Both rebelled against the father. One did it by being good and the other did it by being bad. But both ended up being lost. What we have here is a parable of not one lost son, but of two. Two lost sons. But the big difference lies in here in the brother who is separated, who is on the outside, not because of his sins, but because of his goodness. There is a barrier between him and the Father, not because of his wrongdoing, but because of his righteousness, or rather his self-righteousness and his pride in his goodness. See, as Jesus tells this story, he, he makes one thing clear about sin. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Now sin, sin is also putting self in the place of God as savior in our lives. Both the older brother and the younger brother did it. Both of them wanted to be master and commander of their destiny, lord of their life, their savior. They just went about it in completely different ways. See, as Jesus tells this story, he's telling it in such a way to point out that both self-salvation projects, the one of the younger and the one of the older, are both bad. But the way he ends it points out that they may not be equally as dangerous. You see, one of the ironies of this story is, is how it ends. The younger brother, who is clearly, morally, financially, in every way, Worse off, ends up where? Inside. But the brother, the older brother, the elder brother, ends up where? On the outside. It's because the elder brother heart, the heart of a Pharisee, well, it's often undetected by everybody, including, well, the elder elder brother himself. And so as we close this morning, it might be wise to ask, is there an elder brother inside of us? You see, because although it's not always obvious to the elder brother, there are, there are some symptoms that are very, very clear, very obvious to each and every elder brother. The first is this, the elder brothers, all of them are good and angry. Each and every elder brother is good, leads a good life, does good things, does what's good in the eyes of other people and God. They're a part of the right religion. They're a part of the right tribe, and they're proud of it. And they do good things, and yet they're always angry. There's no joy in their life because either they do good things and they keep up their end of the deal, but God doesn't, and they're mad at him. Or they try to do good things on their own and they fail. And if they're honest, they admit it. And then they're angry at themselves. So no matter what they do, they're always angry. And their anger is a prison of their own making. Because, you see, elder brothers do good things. They lead a good life expecting that God's going to give them a good life. That God is going to owe them. But it doesn't work that way. Elder brothers are also very devout and entitled. Elder brothers lead some of the most devout, most dedicated lives possible. If you are an elder brother, you're the person that thinks because God, God, well, because you pray, because you go to church, because you give to church, that, that God should listen to you. But this isn't giving to God for his love and his glory. No, it's, it's giving to God to get leverage over God. Once upon a time, there was a peasant farmer who, who grew one of the largest carrots in the kingdom. He took it to his king and he said, because I love you, because I respect you, I'm giving you this carrot. I grew it and, and dismissed him. But before, concerning the farmer's heart, the king accepted it with thanks and, and dismissed him. But before the, the farmer left, the king said, wait, Because you've proven to be a wise steward of the land, I'm going to give you a field I own, a large field next to yours, so that you can continue to grow more carrots. The farmer left overjoyed. And now there was a nobleman who was in the king's court and he watched all of this and he said, man, if you get a field for giving a carrot, imagine if I brought something better. So the next day he showed up and he brought a handsome black stallion and he said to the king, because I love you, because I respect you, this is a gift to you. Discerning the man's heart, the king thanked him and dismissed him. But before the nobleman left, he turned around and and looked at the king puzzled. So the king said, let me explain to you. The farmer gave me the carrot." But you're giving yourself the horse. Why is it that you do what you do for God? Why is it that you come to church? Why is it that you give for the mission of the church? Oh, here's one Why is it that you sing songs in church? Is it for yourself? Or is it for God? You see, we say at The Way Church that it is our mission that we exist to help people who are lost, to help people who are far from God, help find their way to Christ and through Christ. But have we ever considered that maybe lostness doesn't have anything to do with one's distance from the Father? but with with one's own idea of what it means to be his child. Have you thought about the fact that lostness perhaps isn't about one's distance from the father, but instead it's about one's idea of what it means to be his child, about what it means to be in his house. You see, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly condemns the wild, extravagant sins of the younger brother that they do out there. But have we forgotten that the gospel of Jesus Christ also clearly condemns self-righteousness and the heart of the elder brother? Jesus tells this parable and he ends it the way that he does to beg the question for us. Are you what label fits? Which are you? Are you the younger brother are you the older brother? If you've been listening to this sermon and you think, you know what, I, I might be a younger brother, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. If you're listening and you think, I, I might be an elder brother, that's good. If you're listening to this sermon and you think, nah, I'm neither of these, I tell you what, meet me by the coffee after this and we'll we'll get it figured out real quick which one you are. But I tell you what, if you're listening to this and you can't quite figure out whether you're a younger brother or whether you're you're an older brother, but you know that you're one of them, and you can't quite figure out which one you are now, which one you have been, that's perhaps the best place to be of all. You see, a a newspaper article once uh, was headlined by What's Wrong With The World? And it's reported that the Christian author, uh, G.K. Chesterton, wrote into this newspaper and said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's perhaps the attitude that recognizes what it means to believe in Jesus as your Savior. That's the attitude that recognizes what it means to be his child. That I am always the one who needs my Father. I am the one that can't serve as my Savior. I severely need the Savior, you know Jesus told this parable, and he told it in the way that he did to completely, to completely tear down our ideas, our concept of who are the moral good guys and who are the immoral bad guys. And Jesus told this parable in, in such a way to get us to all recognize that we are all each in our own way, about our projects of self-salvation. It doesn't matter who you are or, or which brother you're being. We're always doing it all the time. And yet despite that, despite there being younger brothers here this morning, despite there being older brothers here this morning, the reason Jesus told this parable and he told it the way that he did was to get us all to recognize that no matter who you are, We all have the same father. You know, at the beginning of this sermon, I said that this parable is perhaps mislabeled. It's often called the the prodigal son or the lost son. Well, prodigal does not mean waywardness. Prodigal means spendthrift. It means reckless. It means someone who spends without thinking of themselves. Someone who spends until they have nothing less. And it's this parable that our God, that our Savior Jesus uses to describe his father. He describes the father as a father who is a prodigal father. That is what these sons have. They have a God, a father, excuse me, who spent and spent and spent to get the younger son in. Who took on the cost himself just so he could have his younger son back. They had a father who went outside to a stuck-up, arrogant, older son and said, all I have is yours. Literally, everything I have is yours. Please come in. And he took on the shame and he took it on himself. And this is the picture of his father that our Savior wants you to have. Oh, the sons had a prodigal father and you have a prodigal God. You had a God who spared no expense to get you back. But he sent his one and only son to be your older brother, your good older brother, your perfect older brother. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he was that older brother who didn't just go to, the, to a distant country to get you back. He didn't wait for you on the front porch and he didn't go outside to get you either. No, he came from heaven to earth to get you and he went even further still. He descended into hell to defeat Satan and win you back. This is your older brother. This is your brother Jesus who not only gave up part of his inheritance so that you could have something and be in the family once again. No, he gave up everything. He gave up his life and spilled his blood so that you could be back in the family. He gave you his robes of righteousness and he took on indignity and shame and nakedness so that you would not know those things, so that you would only know joy, so that you would only know gladness, so that you would only know what it is to be at the table with God, your father. I mean, think about that. Close your eyes. You can imagine the best party you've ever been at you can imagine the food that was spread out for the best barbecue you've ever experienced all the fun the food the family that was there and that's the picture that our savior uses to paint what awaits you so often theologians like to to paint the picture of a court scene as heaven jesus being the one who steps in and says no for my sake god the judge Declare him not guilty, but innocent. No, that's not the picture Jesus uses. And cartoonists like to have the picture of heaven being the, the clouds and the pearly gates and the long lines. No, Jesus gives us the picture of a party. He gives us the picture of joy, of gladness, of family and friends gathered with the Father. That is the picture of what he gives you that awaits you in heaven. But he also gives you something right now. Something that you don't have to wait for. A label of my daughter and my son. And to you, each and every one of you, he says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Amen.